Turn your Bibles with, with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 27. It is our privilege to, to have this word, to walk through this word, to see what the Lord has spoken to us. And what the Lord is speaking to us from the very mouth of Jesus Christ today is considered awkward to some. Um, it's not a popular discussion in today's culture that we're about to have together. Today we're going to be talking about adultery and lust. If there's anything, if there's any sin that a respectable person could commit and still maintain a respectable standing among their peers, it's lust. And Jesus, as we're going to read here, deals with this very harshly, much more harshly than we see it played out, even in our own churches, in our own family circles, in our own communities. The big sins of adultery, these things are far more apparent. They're easier to expose. But things like lust, those are easy to conceal. Sometimes people are exposed but it is very rare compared to how often it occurs. Some of us in here struggle with this, most likely. But yet, nobody knows about it. Not, perhaps not even our own spouse knows about it. Because it is so easy to conceal. Let me read the passage. Jesus says to us, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you. How merciful, right? Jesus is thinking about you. How, pro how much more profitable is it for you? For one of your members to perish, then for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. From there he launches into a discussion about divorce, which we will discuss next week. But they are very closely connected. But today we're talking about, like I said, adultery, lust, and what Jesus, God, thinks about those things. I read recently that 81% of pastors report being tempted to engage in inappropriate behavior with fellow church members. 81%. That's almost every single pastor out there, at least in, according to this study. They didn't ask me. <laughs> so whoever they asked, 81%. That's astonishing. 34% of pastors struggle with pornography. 34%. If you have three pastors in the room, one of those pastors has a pornography problem. 
according to this study. It's also reported that adultery has played a part in 60% of households in America. 60%. If there were 10 couples in this room, six of you, (laughs) six of us, would be in the midst of an adulterous relationship. Again, astonishing. But is it surprising? This is not an exciting sermon for me to preach. And I, but I and you, we cannot assume that we're just okay. We're a small bunch. Many of us have known each other for decades. But we cannot just assume that we are okay. We must come to scriptures before God and make our hearts sure before Him. Submiss- submitting to Him. Perhaps some of us have a problem in this regard right now, and we know about it. You will know about it. This is not something that is typically hidden from yourself. But we must make ourselves sure before the Lord. Therefore, we have to talk about this. We have to discuss this. And lust is a sin that is highly damaging. But as I've I've mentioned, it is easily concealed. Most of our spouses don't even know if our spouse is struggling with this. Partly not just because we haven't, we don't care, but perhaps because we're afraid of approaching the subject with our spouse in our household because it's awkward and it has the potential to really cause deep hurt if we discover an answer that we don't want to discover within our family unit. It can cause deep hurt and shame. And lust and adultery, it's the primary cause of divorce in America. The number one cause, sexual infidelity of divorce in America. Some of us would rather turn a blind eye than deal with this. Because we know how much it hurts. We know that our culture is saturated with distorted sexuality. And I say distorted because sexuality in a marriage relationship is not a bad thing. But our culture runs rampant with distorted sexuality. And perhaps we don't even want to know if that applies to our own marriage. Because we're afraid of what to do next if we find that it is. But we must discuss this. In fact, following murder, this is the number two subject in Christ's priority list in this sermon. When he dives into this practical teaching on how to approach the law. He first dealt with murder. Big one, right? And hatred from murder. The roots. And now he chooses to talk about adultery and the underlying implications of lust. And this was a huge problem in Christ's day and it's a huge problem today. But we have to first discuss the big question before we really dig deep into Christ's teaching of lust and adultery. We have to determine the question, why is this a problem? Some of us, it's just like, that's a really ridiculous question, Pastor. We know that adultery is wrong. We know that it's harmful. We know that it's unbiblical. We know that God has said, don't do it. 
It's been made part of some of our ethical framework ever since we were small children. But perhaps we view this ritualistically rather than the way God in Christ wants us to see it. We talked about the ritualism of, okay, yeah, I follow the, the, the commandment, don't murder. Okay, got it. Moving on. Next. And last week we talked about, no, you can't just move on. Just because you see the commandment, don't murder, and you're satisfied. But now here we see, don't commit adultery. Okay, I've never committed adultery. Moving on. Next category. Next commandment. And ritual is a ritualistic approach to the commands of God is something that Christ is fighting here in this sermon that he is preaching. And we cannot suffice ourselves to believe that adultery is wrong just because it is. Because the Bible actually takes us further. But in order to see what comes further, we have to see what the framework is. What's the foundation? Why is infidelity wrong? Because God said so. Well, why did God say so? Why did God say so? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Well, God's ways are not our ways, and we don't know all of his wisdom, but he has given us some of his wisdom to understand this question. Why is it wrong? Why did God say that it was wrong? Okay, so perhaps the next answer is because God created marriage to be a sacred union. And that is a correct answer. It is a sacred union. And let's sit on this for a minute, because this discussion of marriage being a sacred union will take us into the next big why question. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. We'll be reading all the way to the end of the chapter. And here the scriptures say, in verse eight, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper, comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused, caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he brought into a, a woman. He made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. In this passage, we see here the origins of marriage, the very first marital union, created, made, performed by God himself. And just like the Sabbath finds its roots in the creation story, remember, on the seventh day, God rested. But when God said, on the seventh day, God rested, he wasn't just stating a fact because he likes to state facts. God was setting forth 
this Sabbath so that the implications so that the teaching of Sabbath could be unfolded for centuries to come, ultimately finding its final wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is now, according to Scripture, considered our Sabbath rest. And this has serious implications on you and my salvation. And all of this was started, it was found its origins in the creation story. God rested on the seventh day, stated plainly. But then the story of Sabbath unfolds for millennia. Until now we see it. The purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. For centuries, we've been building to this moment where Christ comes and reveals himself to be our Sabbath rest. But this is not about Sabbath. Right now we're talking about marriage. Why do we have the first marriage here in the creation story? I mean, it's simply stated... We have this simple story of how God made man and woman and brought them together in this first marriage. It's an easy story to read, just a few verses long. But the implications of this, the story of marriage unfold for centuries. The law speaks about rules and regulations for marriage and how a marital uh, couple should operate, what they should and shouldn't do. But now we have now we come to our century, and we ask the question, why is this why? Why is this here? Why did God give us marriage? I mean, if God never gave us marriage, then we wouldn't know anything about marriage. Because this is where we get our understanding of it. So why did God give it to us? Mark 10:8 says, t- tells us that Christ gives us more doctrine about marriage. If you will look at Mark 10, verse 8. Starting in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This is Jesus speaking. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoted straight from Genesis chapter 2. So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Now take that, think about that for a second. Now it's easy for us to understand when a marriage happens, two lives intersect. Two lives come together and they become one life. It's easy for us to understand that. But here Jesus is pointing out not just that two lives come together and become one. He's saying they are no longer two, but one flesh. It's not just lives. It's flesh. How can, but you're sitting, you know, most of you are sitting next to a person. Perhaps it's some of you, it's your spouse. You are not all of a sudden a Siamese twin. Your flesh has not been stuck together. So what is this? How can you be one flesh, but still be two separate entities? What does this remind you of? Does this not remind us of the Trinity? A Trinitarian theology where you have one God and three persons. The same yet distinct. 
Marriage is a representation of God himself, just in the very nature of the fact that two people become one flesh, but yet remain two distinct people. This is the Trinity. This comes all the way back to the nature of God himself. Marriage represents God. And Jesus adds to that in verse 9, Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. And we see here, we, we remember when we talked about murder last week, and how this hatred is linked to a, us taking upon ourselves the right to determine the value of a person's life. And how we have no right to take life, and we have no right to value, to set the value of life. God did not give us those rights. God retains those rights. And in marriage, God puts together the marriage. And Jesus is saying what God has put together. You don't have the right to take it apart. You don't have that right because God is the one who created this. Just as much as he created life itself, he created marriage. And he created marriage to be an image of himself. So we have to ask the next question. Why did God design marriage? Marriage was always meant to teach us something about God. God himself. And look in Ephesians chapter 5. Because not only is marriage the joining of two, two people, the, bringing two flesh and making it one flesh in some mysterious Trinitarian way that we can't fully understand any more than we can just understand that it's supposed to portray God. But the marriage itself doesn't just portray a Trinitarian perspective of God. It <clears throat> portrays how God has chosen to relate to His people. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, so that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Then he quotes Genesis again. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. But get this, verse 32 opens this up to us. This is a great mystery. Now when, you, when Paul uses the word mystery, typically he's talking about something related to the gospel that was contained in the Old Testament but was not fully revealed and made obvious. 
Paul considered himself, Jesus Christ gave him the ministry of revealing the mysteries to the people, unlocking the scriptures and revealing what the Lord had contained there the whole time, just had not fully revealed to us yet. But when Christ came, now the revelation can make sense. And he says in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So ever since verse 22, he's talking about how marriage should work, how God made it work, and the reason God made it work this way. Because our marriage with our spouse is all about Jesus and the church. God gave us marriage to show us how he relates to you and how he will always relate to you into infinity. I mean, look at this. Now that we know that this is all about Christ and the church, according to Paul, look at this again. Jesus is related to the husband. Jesus is the husband. The church is the bride, the wife. Now, when we say husband, think Christ. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Marriage, from all the way back to the beginning, was setting the stage for us to be able to understand how God loves us, how God relates to us and devotes himself to us. Look at verse 26, so that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the word. Again, our marriage is showing this forth. Verse 27, so that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, us, should be holy and without blemish. In this manner, so husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. Again, as their own bodies, the two shall become one. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes. Okay, remember, this is Jesus. This is what Jesus does for you, the body of Christ. But nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body. Flesh, of his flesh, of his bones. We are that rib of Christ that was taken from him. And now he, through his choosing, comes to us, saves us, brings that rib back into his body, places it right back there and makes us the bone of his bones, the flesh of his flesh. Just as marriage was always portraying for the millennia up until now. That's why he, Paul then quotes verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Because did not Christ leave his Father in heaven to come down to us so that he could join himself to you? So that we could now be one. Marriage is all about Christ and his people. That's what it's always been about. It's a mystery, a great mystery that was concealed in the Old Testament law, wrapped up in a nutshell, now fully revealed to us in Christ. We see it clearly, plainly. And Paul here unfolds it to us, so showing bit 
by bit. This is all about Christ in us. Just like the Sabbath unfolded, and now we see salvation is resting in Christ. That's what Sabbath was teaching. And now we see marriage is all about Christ relating to us, bringing us into his body, making us one with him. Elsewhere in scripture, we talk about this glorious wedding that's going to happen one day in the future, where we are married to Christ. And we fully get to participate in a marriage that is far above any marriage that is, has been on this planet. We may have, had a, may have or had a delightful marriage with a spouse in the past, but none of that compares to the marriage that's up ahead of us with Christ. Some of us have not had the best of marriages. And to that we rejoice that we have a perfect marriage up ahead of us. But this answers the question, why is adultery wrong? It's more than just God said so. Adultery depicts separation of Christ and his people. Adultery rests in the curse of sin, the breaking of that relationship. This is the ultimate form, spiritually speaking, of godlessness and idolatry. For it casts off God's intent from all the way back to the creation of mankind. It casts off his intent of the gospel framework for which Christ finds his fulfillment in the institution of marriage. As we love and as we submit to each other in marriage, we are representing Christ's relationship with his people. When we participate in marital intimacy with someone who is not our marital spouse, we are committing gospel treason. That is why adultery is wrong. Our legal system today does not have harsh laws against adultery outside of who, gets, who perhaps gets treated more seriously in the case of a divorce that may follow. But the, laws, but the Jews, listening to Christ's message here, they knew Leviticus 20 verse 10, and that it prescribed death for adultery. Not every sin in the Old Testament receives the penalty of death. But adultery does. Today we think that, man, that's a little ridiculous. All the person did was give in to a passion. A legitimate passion. We all have these passions. And all they did was make a mistake. They let their guard down. So let it be. But in God's legal system, this is a serious matter. And for centuries, the people had to treat it as a serious matter so that they could be prepared to see the Christ and how marriage unfolds in Him. In the United States, most of our states don't even classify adultery as a minor misdemeanor. I did some research on this, and there are actually some states, 21 states in fact, that have laws about adultery and penalties. They are not always enforced, but they're there. In fact, get this, Maryland, if you're caught in adultery, you can get fined a whopping $10. Man, that'll teach them. 
$10, but in New Hampshire, now this is backbreaking, $1,200 fine for being caught in adultery. In the military, you could get a dishonorable discharge if you commit adultery and it causes a big ruckus. In fact, I think in this statistic I read that out of the people that got, out of the, the, uh, out of the uh, officers that were discharged dishonorably, 30% were because of adultery that went haywire. But Jesus is not bringing in a new justice system here and making the law more lenient as the United States have been lenient against adultery. Jesus is not coming and saying, you know what, guys? You guys have had to kill adulterers for centuries. I'm going to give you guys a break. Take a breather. You don't have to do that anymore. In fact, when the Pharisees even, to test Jesus, they brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Remember this story? And said, Jesus, the law says that she should be stoned. What say you? Did Jesus say, no, don't do it. He didn't say that. He said, okay, whoever hasn't sinned, cast the first stone. He was supporting the law even in that situation. He was supporting the law that says she should have been stoned. He wasn't denying it, but he was also adding this law of love. Because these Pharisees were bitter. They didn't care about people. They didn't care about law. They didn't even care about justice. They were just trying to trap Jesus, and they would kill this woman to do it. Jesus is not bringing leniency. And remember, he said in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 5, that whoever loosens one of the least commands and teaches other people to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then we see in verse 28 that Jesus is actually coming off stronger. Look back at Matthew chapter 5. You may already be there, but I will catch up with you. In verse 28, he says, But I say to you, it's not just about adultery. Whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery for her in his heart. See that word already? He's saying it's just as if right then you had committed real adultery with her. If you just look at her with lust in your heart. He's not making the law more lenient. He is, rev- he is unfolding the true intent of this law to provide purity, radical purity in a person's heart, not just in the checklist of the Ten Commandments. Is it no wonder that the Bible talks about how when the Christ would come, he would take their hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. The, ta- the Ten Commandments were given to us on tablets of stone. And the people were content to simply have a checklist on a piece of stone that they could go and chisel a little check mark in as they felt compelled to do so. But Jesus is calling us to radical purity from the heart. And the Old Testament was always trying to get people there, but it was still an element of that was concealed, and Jesus is revealing that to us now. And who among us in here, if a person was brought before us, say, this person has lusted, they deserve the death penalty, who of us would cast the first stone? As though we had never lusted. 
as though we had always kept in perfect purity in our heart this commandment. Who of us could cast the first stone? What Jesus is calling the people to is radical righteousness. A righteousness that we cannot have without Christ. The Bible says that if you fall in regard to one area of the law, you're responsible as though you had committed the whole thing. And all of it's condemnation. And if anything should scare us, it's that condemnation is passed out to everyone who perhaps, if it were possible, to keep the letter of the law, but fail to keep it sincerely from the heart in all manners. Therefore, we, you and I, need a Savior that is more radical than we ever thought. A Savior who does not have limits to His salvation. A forgiveness that has no limits. Because our ability to keep the whole law from the heart in all regards is severely and radically insufficient to plea its own case before an almighty righteous judge. If you are sitting here thinking that you have something to say, some case to plea outside of Christ for your own justification, you are drastically wrong. And I would urge you to listen here to see what the Word has to say. Because Jesus is calling us to Himself in all of this. He is revealing, unfolding a burden upon these people that this is engulfing everybody. All these people that are sitting on this mountainside listening to Jesus, all of them hear this and they say, okay, I may not have committed adultery, but surely who among us has has never lusted? And yet, Jesus, you're saying that the same condemnation that adultery deserves death by stoning is now passed out to those who have simply looked with, with lust? It's not just those who have committed adultery, it's those who've lusted? Who of us can be, who, how then can we be saved? Is the heart cry. We can't stand in judgment. Not on our own, we can't plead our own case. We must come before Jesus who pleads our case for us. For He died on the tree, bearing a curse that was due us because of our sin, who gave us His righteousness because He knew that we could never have a righteousness of our own making. So He came to give us our own righteousness, to sanctify us, to cleanse us, according to what marriage was always supposed to depict throughout all history. Christ came to do that because we couldn't do it for ourselves. But to those of you who have God's radical righteousness given to you in the person of Jesus Christ, we still must see here in verse 29 and 30 that we are still called to radical righteousness. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it away from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Does Jesus, did really, Jesus really just say to us that we need to mutilate ourselves in order to prevent sin? 
Is that what Jesus just told us here? Well, he did just tell us that. You read it plainly just as much as I did. <laughs> he told us that. But why aren't, why, are, why, why aren't we all blind then? <laughs> why have we not all plucked out our eyes, cut off our hands, so that sin could be prevented? Because Jesus wasn't really telling us how he wants us to prevent sin. Because frankly, if you were to pluck out your eyes and cut off your hands, you still have your thoughts, you still have your memories, you still have the ability to sin without your eyes and your hands. Jesus was not necessary. I would contend that Jesus is not telling us to literally do these things, but he's showing us to such great lengths we should care about righteousness. How seriously we need to take these matters. You may not pluck out your eyes, but if you have a problem with something, some media source, television, a phone, are you willing to pluck that out? Are you willing to turn that off? To cut that subscription? Because you are always fall, falling in that regard? Are you even willing to do that? If you are truly willing to do that, and you know that you're always falling in that regard, and you're truly willing, then you will do that. If you're taking this seriously. I am not trying to come across as a legalist. I am not telling you that this is how you obtain the righteousness of Christ. But I am telling you, this is how you walk in God's ways. This is not how you make him more happy with you. God is already satisfied with you in Christ. He is happy with you in Christ Jesus. He loves you in Christ Jesus. And he is sanctifying you. He has cleansed you. You do not have to worry about what God thinks about you because he loves you. But here, Jesus is telling us, you, the person who cares about this, you must be willing to go to radical lengths to follow the law of your God. Because he is still your father. He is still your master. And there is no, there is no good father, there is no good proper master who does not have a way in which you should follow. And there is, no ser there is no proper servant and there is no proper son who will not follow those. First, Jesus broadened our understanding of what was worthy of punishment, engulfing the masses of everybody who lusted. Then he broadens our understanding of the punishment. See? It's not just those who commit adultery who deserve death, it's those who lust who deserve death. Now it's not just those who lust that deserve death, those who lust deserve hell. He has broadened this on every side. And we've discussed because this is gospel treason against something that God has been setting in motion to prove the gospel, to illustrate the gospel for millennia. And in bidding us to, rid it, to ridding ourselves of that which could be a vessel for condemnation, Jesus is calling us to rethink how seriously we approach these desirable offerings in our life. Nobody lusted where there was no desire. Nobody committed adultery where there was no desire. Nobody murdered where there was no desire. There was, nobody hated where there was no opportunity. James 1 verse 21 tells us to rid ourselves of excessive unrighteousness. 
I like how the King James put it, the superfluity of naughtiness. <laughs> that just kind of has a weird ring to it. I like saying that sometimes. It's, I know I'm weird. But what he's saying there is we need to rid ourselves of excessive unrighteousness. And Jesus here is telling us to pursue, in a sense, excessive righteousness. And by that, what I mean, above and beyond what normal population would consider reasonable. Again, I am not one to push legalism. I'm not one to say, if you don't follow these rules, then you can't fellowship with us, then you can't, then you're not, then you're... I'm not that kind of person. But what I'm reading here is what Jesus is saying. And what Jesus is saying is that we need to take this seriously. The sin Christ is talking about here is sexual impurity, both of the body and of the heart. Have you loosened up on your attention to God's word on this matter simply so that you could get through the season of that show that you really like? Just so that you could have this app where you can look at pictures of kids and grandkids and friends, but you're also falling all the time because of the other images and the other articles that pop up, pop up as you're scrolling through. If you are okay with that failure because of the other good things that come along with it, then we're not taking Jesus seriously here when he calls us to, like I said, excessive righteousness. A righteousness that goes above and beyond what society would demand, would consider to be reasonable. We are supposed to, as, as our society we would be concerned, unreasonably righteous But most of us have no interest in that. That's weird, man. (laughs) That automatically kind of sets us apart from society. But is that not what holiness means, to be set apart? Is it therefore hard to understand that if you are following the righteousness that God would have for his people, that you would be set apart from mass society? Not that we try to pick fights, not that we try to be weird. No, we're in pursuit of God. And what happens, happens. What follows, follows. All I know is that my eyes are set on Christ, and that is enough for me. That is enough. Because what he has said is good. And I believe it, and I trust it. And yeah, there's a part of this where we just say, you know what, I'm a child before God. I'm a child of God. I have a childlike faith. And I will follow him just because he said it. Because he's my God, he's my father, he's my master, and I'm okay with that, and I'm okay with following that. I'm, I'm on board, and I will follow him. I am pursuing Christ, and whatever follows that, whatever repercussions follow in my life, okay. Whatever I might lose, whatever I might have to cast off or cut off, I'm okay with that. Because all I really need is Jesus. That's all I want. I don't want Facebook if it means I'm going to be altered from my pursuit of Christ. I don't need cable. Even though I love basketball, football, I don't need that. If it's going to alter my, my focus from Christ. If there is something in your life that's altering your focus from Christ, then I would implore you that throughout this week, read this passage. And again, I'm specifically talking about lust here. I'm not not talking about lust here. Jesus is talking about lust here. 
you're having a problem with that, address it with God. Address it with Christ. Some of you need to confess your sin. There's a time when perhaps this... I'm not even going to say that. Because we can't be in the habit of concealing sin. Because we're embarrassed. If you need to confess it to your spouse, confess it to your spouse. If you need to confess it to a church leader so that we can help, confess it. Because much of this is in the arena of addiction. And those addictions cannot be solved on your own. They cannot. That's why it's an addiction. You need help from somebody this has been a problem for you for years or even just days confess your sin before God rid yourself of that which is causing you to stumble so that you can be focused your utmost attention given to the Christ of glory who is planning to wed you someday who treats you as a husband should treat his wife, who loves you unfailingly. He will not turn you away. He will not divorce you. He will sanctify you. He's cleansed you. He has called you. And we must follow him. We must, as the wife, submit to him. That is our place. That is why marriage is given, so that we could see Christ in us. And seek, from this point forward, radical righteousness. Not because you're trying to build your own self-image. Not because you're trying to make yourself feel better about yourself, or build a case to justify yourself before God. The case is already in Christ's hands. He is the mediator. He is our advocate. He is the one who has the case already made up for you. You don't have to work on your case. But you, in love, pursue Christ, setting aside anything that distracts you. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for these hard subjects that cause us to think, that separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the hard things, the disagreeable things concerning the human flesh anyway, the things that are not easy for our flesh to digest. I thank you for these things, and really it is for our good that you give them to us. You have called us out, you have chosen us, you have loved us. As a husband ought to love his wife. And we don't deserve that. We are the gutter people. We are the, the mourners. We are the filth. Our clothes were stained and putrid. Our skin wrinkly and crusty and dirty. With a frown upon our face. Natted hair. With nothing to offer. Carrying only poverty. But Lord, you, have, you went out and you chose us. You made us your own. You cleaned us. You cleansed us. You anointed us with oil. 
You purified us. You've made us fit for your kingdom. May we not look at all of that and turn our eyes back to the gutters from where we came and all that filth and depravity that we were covered in. Let us be content to cast off all of that life because of the life that you have given us already through your forgiveness and your justification. I pray for strength here. As you have told us that it is not by our power, but by your spirit that we are washed and we are sanctified. And we are to work out our sanctification in fear and trembling, for it is God that works in us for the sake of his good pleasure. Lord, we need you to work in us. You have done this big miracle of saving us and purifying us and cleansing our soul. But Lord, yet we have this life that does not always reflect the work that you've done inside of us. Purify us of our lusts, of our hatred. Purify us of the unseemliness inside that we still perhaps have a hard time letting go because of the loss that it may be accompanied by. Lord, be to us far greater the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field that we would sell anything, everything, in order to go and receive for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.